awake, especially on a Sunday afternoon. As I look outside, it looks a little bit dark out there, and can't tell much because those doors back there are, are dark. But I know that you may want to go to sleep, but I promise you, if you will stay awake with us for a few minutes, that we will try to do our best to say something that will be worth your time. And then uh, you may get to go home and get a little nap, depending upon what your, the rest of your schedule is. Uh, some of you uh, were involved last week in watching a video with us, uh, working on evangelism and so forth. We'll be doing that rather than at three. If you can stay, we'll be doing that immediately after we dismiss here uh, today. And so we'll, we'll try to get all of that in. Have your Bible tonight. Turn with us to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter number 1. We've been studying from this chapter for several weeks now in the, uh, uh, since the beginning of the year. And we want to talk tonight about something that uh, really and truly is still looked at in a way that Paul described a long, long time ago. What you're looking at here on the screen, the picture that you see is a picture of what's called Palatine Hill, which is in Rome. Palatine Hill has been around for a long time. Uh, it's been inhabited for a long time. As a matter of fact, archaeologists have found uh, in digs, uh, they found evidence that people have lived there since uh, about the 10th century B.C. And so 10 centuries before Christ, people have been living on that particular place in Rome. So as you look at it and you think about it, it may not look like much, but it's uh, pretty important because it was here on Palatine Hill that the rich and the affluent people of Rome would make their home. And as a matter of fact, on Palatine Hill, there were many of the emperors who made their dwelling places. The later emperors, we had Augustus, we had a Tiberius, uh, Nero had a place on Palatine Hill as well as Domitian. And you, you would think, you know, that it's a pretty important place. Palatine Hill is where we get our word for palace. And so you'd understand then that when the Roman emperors were living there, they had palaces on Palatine Hill. And that's where, they, uh, where we get our English word palace. It comes from this particular place. Now, why are we talking about Palatine Hill? Well, there was a house that was very near Palatine Hill in which some of the earliest drawings were found in relating to, to Christianity and to Christ. Uh, one of these things is called the Aleximenos Graffito. Um, if you look at that last word, you may, may figure out that it's close to our word graffiti, and that's really what it is. It's graffiti on a wall. And this was found inside a house, and it is believed to date from somewhere near the end of the first century to somewhere around the beginning of the third century. Now what is on that? I know you can't tell very much about it, but if you could tell something about it, such as this tracing that came from it, you would see that it depicts a man with a donkey's head hanging on a cross and another man who is believed to be a Roman soldier because of the way that he is uh, dressed has his hand raised and it looks like a bunch of scribbling but it is Greek letters and that Greek translates to something like this Aleximenos worships his God. 
Alexmanos, a Roman soldier, worshiping his God, hanging on a cross. When you look at that, there can be little doubt because of the drawing, because of the fact that it is a donkey, a man with a donkey's head. It seems there can be nothing less than someone making fun of someone who would worship a a Christ on a cross. And so as we think about that, and we think about the way it must have been in, you know, the second century, late first century, second century, people were making fun of those who were Christians. You know, we still get made fun of today, don't we? For worshiping a man who died on a cross and worshiping a God in heaven that people say cannot be seen, even though we see the evidence all around us. But as we think about it, Paul would have something to say about that in the book of 1 Corinthians. Not the drawing, but the man on the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, at verse number 18, Paul wrote these words. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. As you think about that, think about that drawing. Think about someone putting that graffiti on a wall, making fun of Aleximanos for worshiping that God on the cross. Think about that in relation to what the Apostle Paul says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. As we analyze this verse, you may be reading from the King James Version if you have your own Bible open. And it says this, it says, For the preaching of the cross, the word that is used there is literally the word logos, and it is the word for word in the Old Testament, or the New Testament rather. But it's referring, of course, to the word that was spoken or the word that was preached. And so either of those translations are, are adequate and good. The word of the cross or the preaching of the cross is folly to some. To some, it is said to be folly. That word that's used, translated folly, is the word Maria. Uh, literally means silliness, absurdity. It's the word from which we get our word moron. And so as you look at that and you think about it, what Paul has said is some people say that anybody who would worship or anyone who would consider it great, a man to be great who had been crucified, is stupid. He is a moron. And that's literally what happens today still, isn't it? Those of us who are Christians are made fun of because we're looked upon as being morons. We're looked upon as being less intelligent than someone who is more enlightened through his own worldly wisdom. And so that's what Paul said. Some people are like that. But others, he said, to the cross for others, the cross is the power of God. The word power, dynamis, you've probably heard it before. It's the word that we get our word dynamite from. The preaching of the cross to those who are being saved is literally the dynamite, the power of God. Again, as we begin to set our minds on this passage and think about what the Apostle Paul is teaching us here, let me just simply say that we can really divide people, all people, into one of three groups. What are those three groups? Well, number one, we can divide them into the people who are lost. We can divide the 
last group. And remember, when we talk about those who are lost, we're talking about the same people, the ones that Jesus was talking about when he made that famous statement in the book of Luke, chapter 19, at verse number 10, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save the lost. The word apolumi is a word which means to destroy, to perish. And that's the word that is used here in Luke chapter 10. And so when Paul says <coughs> that there are those who are perishing, who believe the cross to be folly, to be foolishness, and one who would follow after that to be a moron, uh, those are the people that uh, Jesus came to save. Those are the people who need him in their life. He came to seek and to save the lost. But we understand, and just very quickly, you know, tonight, 1 Timothy chapter 1 at verse 15, we know that Paul wrote about Jesus' coming and his mission, but Paul puts it in these terms, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world, watch this, to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. And so the lost that Jesus came to save, Luke chapter 19, are said by Paul to be sinners. Those who are perishing are those who are sinning in life and have not their sins washed away, have nothing to cover the sins that they have in their life. In Romans chapter 5, verse number 9, Paul wrote and said, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Again, tying these verses together, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, those who are perishing. But those who are lost, those who are perishing are sinners. And Jesus Christ came to save sinners. But again, as Paul wrote in Romans 5 at verse 9, what are those who are lost, those who are sinners, what are they to be saved from? And Paul says in Romans chapter 5 at verse 9, that Christ came to save man from the wrath of God. In the book of Revelation chapter 14 at verse 10, John writes about the wrath of God and the time when the wrath of God will be poured out full strength. King James Version without mixture. For those who are lost, the end of the way is eternal punishment. Where God will himself withdraw from them and they will be cast into the fiery pit to suffer for eternity. And that's, you know, somewhat of a misnomer because eternity has no end. And so they can't go all the way through it. It will never be. God's wrath from which Christ came, for which Christ came to save us will be poured out then. There are some people who are in that group, those who are lost. But a second group of the three that people can be divided into are those who are saved. Those who are saved. Acts chapter 2 verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church day by day those who were being saved. A different group. They came out of that first group, didn't they? Before you can be saved, you have to be lost. Before you can be saved, you have to be perishing. And so there were some who were 
taken from the group, that first group, and they were moved into that second group. They came from being lost to being saved. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 8, for by, the grace, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Indeed, we preach salvation by grace, but through faith. And it's not our purpose tonight to deal as much with being saved by grace through faith and how that happens, grace being God's part, faith being our part. But it is the idea of being saved that we do want to note. In the book of Titus, chapter 3, at verse number 5, Paul writes and said, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We talked this morning in our uh, morning worship about the mercy of God and how it acted because of His love that counteracted His justice that had, uh, had to take place because God's holiness had been offended. But He says here that He saved us. In First Thessalonians chapter 1 at verse number 10, And they wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who, watch this, delivers us from the wrath to come. Again, talking about the saved. And so, as we look at it, we see that here is a distinct group. Now that first group, the ones who were lost, are said to, by Paul in his writing here in First Corinthians, uh, language indicates that they're in the process of being lost. They're in the process. We would say they were going down the wide and the broad uh, way. That's not our terminology. That's not our way of thinking. That's what Jesus himself said, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And just like those who were in the process of being lost, uh, there in the first part of our study, uh, those who are saved are also in the process of being saved. It's not that we have had salvation. We cannot lose it. If we change our actions and turn away from God, then um, we get back on the wrong track, so to speak. But we're in the process of being saved. But we can still talk about the saved just as Paul talks about them. So, we have two groups of the three. We have those who are lost, those who are saved, and then we have a third group that the rest will fall into. They're those who are not accountable. Those who uh, not, are not accountable for their actions. They're incapable of knowing right from wrong. Now, some of you are holding babies here in this audience. And you're in the process of teaching that child. You know, the older they get, the, the more you should have taught them, the more they should have learned the difference between right and wrong. But they're, those little babies, they don't know right from wrong right now. They know they're hungry and they cry. They know they're wet and they cry. They don't understand all of the things about hygiene. They don't understand all of the things about nutrition. They don't understand those things. They just know 
that they are, one day they'll come into an understanding if their mind develops as God intended for it to do. They will know the difference between right and wrong. You see, by the time they're 10 years old and you take them to Walmart and they start squalling because they're hungry, uh, that's when they get into trouble. Now, hopefully, you would have taught them a little better before they got to that age, but they know the difference. They know, you know, uh, begin to learn uh, some differences there. There are those, though, who, because of some handicap, their mind never develops into maturity. And they are persistently in this state of not being accountable because they're still like a child. There is that group. And I'm thankful that God has made it clear in His Word that we have that group. For the vast majority of people, they're not in this group. They're in one of the others. Those who are in this group are in a safe condition. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. He started that verse out by saying, The soul that sins it shall die. But as we look at it, we have those three groups. We're mainly concerned tonight about the first two. The ones who are lost are perishing in the process of perishing. The ones who are saved, they're in the process of being saved. But as we think about these two groups, those who are perishing, seeing many of them at least to take the position that the word of the cross is folly. To preach the cross is to preach the gospel. Thus, they take the position that the gospel... The Word of God, the Bible, is foolishness. It's worthless. It's not good for anything. When we think about the preaching of the cross or the preaching of the gospel, to preach the gospel is to preach the basic facts of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse number 4. And I said that was the basic uh, preaching. As we know, there are other things that are related to those who, who study about this, and thus we have the entirety of the New Testament, and we are to preach and to teach it in accordance with uh, God's will. And so, as we look at it, though, to preach the cross is to preach the gospel. But those who are perishing may have a hard time believing that a man who died on a cross was put in the ground in a tomb, actually came out of that tomb, and can now be your Savior. Think about that. Think about how that sounds. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you drop on down to verses 22 and 23, Paul would continue on. He said... For the Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to the Jew and a folly to the Gentiles. The Jews, those who are in the class of thinking that the word of the cross is folly, Paul says they, they demand a sign. 
They want to see evidence. They want to see something that's going to prove. They wanted, they wanted signs. They were all about signs. Well, what about all the signs that Jesus performed while He was here? What about all the things that He did miraculously in healing the sick, in healing those who are handicapped, in making the blind to see, the deaf to hear, in walking on water, in raising the dead. All of those things that he did while here on this earth. You would think that would be enough to convince people that, man, this, this man is something more than just a, another human being, wouldn't you? You'd think that would be the case. But the Jews were not happy with that. As a matter of fact, in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 38 through 41, they come to Jesus. The Bible says the scribes and the Pharisees said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. If you read that in its context, Jesus has been performing all kinds of signs already, feeding multitudes of people with minuscule amounts of food. And again, walking on water and healing the sick and doing all of those things. And they come and they say, we want to see a sign. What have you been witnessing with your own eyes? But we still want to see a sign. It's interesting in that passage that Jesus tells them that an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except. Notice Jesus didn't say, I'm not going to give you anything else. He just says, here's the ultimate. Except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in uh, three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, he says, goes on, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus said, I'm not giving you another one except this great one. The sign that was portrayed by Jonah and his adventures, if you will, where Jesus was, or rather Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days before being spit out. But just like that, Jesus would be in the grave for three days before coming out. Folks, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, the preaching of the cross. But you know what? Even this one last great sign not convince many of those hard-hearted Jewish people. They still went around, followed after Paul, went great distances trying to convince those who were being preached to by Paul that he was some false teacher. That the man that he was preaching, the Christ that he was preaching, and the cross that he was preaching were not to be believed. They thought it was folly. Paul goes on and says the Greeks or the Gentiles, they, they're more interested in the philosophical discussion of things. The wisdom, if you will. 
It's not that they wanted so much to see a sign as they wanted to argue the, the matter. The Grecian philosophers sought to find the best manner of life, and they sought to do that through human reasoning. Now, go back to the Old Testament and think. These Grecian philosophers, what, did, what must they have thought when they uh, read about God's people leaving Egyptian bondage and getting trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army? And how God would open up the Red Sea. They would have said that was foolish for these people to have done it. What about the way that, that Jericho was captured? Marching around the city for seven days, one time a day for six days, and on the seventh day marching around it seven times, and then blowing some horns and shouting to bring down the walls of a city. Do you think in their human reasoning they would ever have come up with that? That way of doing it? What about Gideon and his 300 going and uh, into the, the midst of 100,000, more than 100,000 people with 300 and winning that battle? Think about all of those things. In man's reasoning, none of that would have ever happened. It would have seemed weak and foolish but may I ask you tonight, what about the outcome in all of those? Did it work out with the hand of God? Absolutely. The Greeks, they never would have dreamed of that. Nor would they have dreamed of saving man from eternal punishment through the death of a man. Because that was too hard to fathom. Too hard to accept. Suppose you believe man to need saving, and you could come up with a plan. What would your plan be? Would we in any way, form, or fashion come up with the cross? Probably never in a million years would any of us come up with that idea. But God says back in the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 55 verses 89, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We would never have dreamed of it. It would have seemed weak and foolish to so many, and it did, and it still does. But that's because we're not thinking with the thinking of God. Those who are perishing take the position that the word of the cross is folly. Those who are being saved, though, take the position that the word of the cross is God's power in action. Three things here that I want you to think about. Number one, the very fact that Jesus was crucified demonstrates the power of God. You say, how in the world could that happen? It looked like he lost when they put him on a cross and hung him there. But the very fact that he was crucified demonstrates God's power. How, how is that? 
Think about what's said in the book of John, chapter 12, verses 32 and 33. Jesus said, And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus made it clear that he was going to be hung on a cross. And nothing anybody could do would stop that. It was God's will for that to happen. It was God's plan for that to take place. And when that happened, many would be drawn. Have you ever considered the fact that the normal Jewish method of execution was not crucifixion, but rather it was stoning? As a matter of fact, God in the Old Testament mandated that in certain occasions that capital punishment be carried out by stoning an offender, taking them out outside the city, throwing rocks at them until they're dead. In the book of John, chapter 8, at verse 59, Jesus had offended the Jewish leaders. And the Bible says, So they picked up stones to throw at him. Imagine that. Not many people would ever escape from something like that when the leaders determined that he was going to be put to death. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus is, shall we say, hemmed in in the temple. The people are wanting to execute him. The leaders are wanting to execute him. But somehow, and I probably would imagine it was in a miraculous way, Jesus was able to get away, to hide himself. It was not God's will for Jesus to be stoned to death. It was God's will for him to be lifted up. Hence we have God's power at work. Look at John 10 verse 31. Not just one time do they attempt to put Jesus to death by stoning him, but the very words of John 10 verse 31 are this, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Not once, but twice they're trying to execute him. But you know what? On that second time, they were no more successful than on the first time. After some debate about the Scriptures, notice what the Bible says down in verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest Him, but He escaped from their hands. Jesus was able to get away from the authorities again. It's probably much like what we read in the book of Luke chapter 4, verses 29 and 30, when Jesus was in his own hometown. And on the Sabbath day, he picked up the Bible and read, read from a certain scripture, and basically says it this way, uh, that's talking about me. They didn't like that. You remember what the Bible says? They rose up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. It wasn't God's plan for Jesus to be thrown off of a cliff and plunged to his death. It was God's plan that he be crucified. 
But then verse 30 says, But passing through their midst, he went away. Again, it seems in a miraculous way, Jesus was able to escape. And this even before the Jews sought to arrest him or sought to stone him to death. Where did Jesus get his power? From his Father, from heaven, from God. And so, the very fact that he was crucified demonstrates God's power. They could have put anyone else to death, at least in two ways, on three occasions. They had the opportunity to do that to Jesus. But the fact that Jesus was crucified demonstrates God's power. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 54 is Matthew's account of the crucifixion. Consider the power that was shown at the crucifixion. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks were split. The tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many when the centurion and those who were with him Keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. Now wait a minute. What did they see? They saw God's power in action. Sun darkened. Earth shaking. Dead people getting up and walking out of their tombs. At the crucifixion, when all of this takes place, The Bible says, When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And then they spoke these words. Truly this was the Son of God. Just to get him there, demonstrates God's power. And on the day of His crucifixion, God's power was again demonstrated, not to mention three days later when Jesus Himself came out of the cross. The fact that Jesus was crucified demonstrates this to be the power of God. Number two, the fact that Jesus was buried demonstrates God's power. Usually, the body of a crucified person was left on the cross. 
until it decayed. We think that to be a horrible thing, and it was. The death itself was bad enough then to allow the body there to decompose on the cross is almost unimaginable. But back in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53 at verse number 9, long before Jesus ever came on the scene, Isaiah had something to say. He said this, They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. All we need to do is read about Joseph of Arimathea taking Jesus down from the cross and burying him in his tomb. You see, there has to be some of the power of God involved in the fact that centuries before, it could be foretold exactly what would happen. But not only that, think about what is said in the book of Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree. You shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defy your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. God had given instructions long before. Do you remember that Joseph comes and asks for the body of Christ because it is the preparation day? They didn't want it to defile their feast that was upcoming and all of the events because they knew it would have been a violation of God's divine Old Testament law. And so God had mandated long before, not long before even Isaiah prophesied it, God had mandated that that was what was to happen. And that's exactly what happened. He wasn't left to hang on the cross until his body no longer existed. The fact that Jesus was buried demonstrates God's power. But then thirdly, the fact that Jesus was resurrected also demonstrates the power of God. Romans 1 at verse 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Acts chapter 17 verses 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he's fixed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Again, as we think about it, God had his hand in the resurrection. And so tonight, this afternoon... Those who are being saved, in the process of being saved, can only be saved by Christ. It was His job, His mission to come to seek and to save the lost. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we can be saved. But as we think about it, all of these things, His death, His burial, His resurrection, we see the power of God 
in every single one of them. We know it to be the power of God. The word of the cross has little or no appeal to the worldly-minded, the proud-hearted. Only to those with a humble mind who will allow themselves to be convinced of God's power through the facts of the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord. Only those truly see the power of God. It's not just because we believe these things to be true. It is because they are true. And they have been attested by many witnesses to be true. Christ is the power and wisdom of God. Not because we say so. Not because we make it so. But because it is so. It is a tragic and terrible mistake. It's one of eternal consequences for one to believe that the cross, the word of the cross, the preaching of the cross, is folly. But it is an eternal blessing for those who grasp its meaning and take advantage of its power. Maybe you're here this afternoon and you need to take advantage of the power of the cross by being buried with your Lord in baptism, raised up to walk in newness of life, just like He was raised out of the de- from the dead. So can we be raised from a state of spiritual lifelessness? We can come and we can worship and we can serve Him and one day we can look forward to living with Him and being there for eternity. Maybe you're here.